really a combination of two things, I would say, over the past 25 years that has led us to where we are in the fervor about Section 230. So one is just the changes in technology. So uh, Section 230 was passed at a time where these platforms were bulletin boards that were passive. It was very rudimentary in some ways. And over time, with the growth of big tech platforms, algorithms, AI, um, you really see a change both in kind of the concentration of power into a few big platforms, as well as a change in the type of platforms that we have, ones that where they kind of blur the line now from just passively hosting speech to actively creating content and playing a much stronger role. And at the same time as you have these immense technological changes, that's against a backdrop of court decisions that have interpreted the immunity under Section 230 extremely broadly in ways that I think that the, the authors would not have predicted. Welcome to episode 326 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express here do not reflect the opinions of our firms, our institutions, our clients, our families, uh, or our pets. Uh, and today I'm going to interview, uh, this will be fun, uh, Lauren Willard uh, serves as counsel to the Attorney General uh, uh, on a, a bunch of digital issues, including uh, Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. And she's uh, been part of producing a report on that that uh, was pretty well received, uh, especially for a uh, Trump administration Justice Department effort. Uh, Lauren, welcome. Uh, and joining me on the News Roundup is Nick Weaver, uh, who's uh, at uh, UC Berkeley in computer science, David Chris, who founded Culper Partners uh, and has decades of experience and intelligence law enforcement and security, including uh, serving as the assistant attorney general for national security. Paul Rosenzweig, uh, uh, law professor at George Washington Law School, former DHS uh, deputy assistant secretary uh, uh, and a longtime friend. Uh, and I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program, as well as, of course, the chief provocateur. Um, why don't we go back to a story we did last week? I, uh, I, I think I called this in the show notes, Shrems to the Hangover. Um, it, that is to say, what are we going to do? do with the Schrems 2 decision. We've now had a week to think about it. Uh, there have been a couple of policy statements from the European Union, none of them particularly comforting. Um, so uh, what is the likely course of Schrems 2? What's it going to mean? Uh, and can we, you know, can the U.S. actually comply with what the uh, Court of Justice of the European Union thinks are minimum standards for human rights, um, and should we? Let me let me ask David. You've you've been around this uh, field for as long as the Europeans have been harassing us with their unfounded claims of uh, human rights uh, uh, violations on the part of the United States. Uh, I, you read the decision. Do you think that there is something in the decision that suggests the United States government could comply with what the EU uh, Court of Justice wants and still have effective counterterrorism intelligence programs? 
Yeah, I, I think the odds of uh, the kinds of legislative amendments that the ECJ is seeking here uh, in the United States are essentially zero in the short, medium, and even the foreseeable long term. Um, the idea that we would, you know, really uh, provide individual redress, I guess, ex ante in 702. Um, and or subject the entire 12333 regime to statutory controls seems to me far-fetched uh, and, and very, very unlikely. Uh, I just can't imagine a, a U.S. Congress doing that in any presidential administration that one can foresee or that has been in power over the last, uh, you know, since 9-11 anyway. Um, so I think that's unlikely. There may be some room for um, sub-legislative changes through some uh, court-approved procedures, but only really for 702. Those wouldn't really reach 12333, which is the other prong of the court's objections. Uh, and there may be some room for enhanced contractual clauses um, if people are proceeding and doing transfers under that regime. But I don't think the U.S. is going to reform its uh, its FISA and 12333 collection to meet the the ECJ's prescriptions as I read them here. Yeah, so I, I, my understanding about the objection to twelve triple three is probably um, tied to the descriptions, the public descriptions of what's called the upstream program, in which. Uh, um, uh, internet traffic that is just crossing the United States at some point uh, can be sniffed and uh, uh, see copied uh, and then searched for particular selectors. Uh, but there's no prior determination. This is what we're going to get. And we, we have these, uh, these suspects and we're going to pluck their communications from this mass of uh, uh, data that's crossing the United States. And I read the decision as basically saying, if you can't determine in advance uh, uh, who you're looking for and why, then you, you're not allowed to do any of that. I mean, e even if it doesn't go that far, and upstream, of course, is a, is a 702, a former 702 collection program, probably best described. Um, you know, the idea, I mean, one of the key points I took from this was that things like PPD 28 and the ombudsman, which are acts of executive discretion, one might say, um, even if they were substantively adequate, which it doesn't seem they are, uh, are not adequate because they're not imposed as a matter of law, but as a matter of executive discretion. And it just seems to me hard at some very basic level to imagine uh, closer statutory or even judicial oversight and control over uh, Twelve triple three collection. I mean, there are lots of important procedures, PPD twenty eight and USAID eighteen, and, and various other documents that are largely public uh, in one form or another. But it's almost like by category, those aren't going to cut it as under the under the approach here. And I just don't see us, you know, really bringing all of that stuff under statutory control. So I, I kind of agree with you. Congress is not likely to do that. But the fact that Congress doesn't do it doesn't mean that Congress is so opposed to, to, to that that they're willing to pick a fight with the European Union uh, over the decision. Uh, I, I have not seen a rush to introduce legislation to punish uh, uh, the European uh, Union and its court 
for their interference in our intelligence programs. Um, uh, so we could end up in a situation where the U.S. government does nothing about this. Is that right? I hope. I mean, I hope that this gets worked out at the, at least in part, at the diplomatic level. Um, I thought your piece in Lawfare, you know, is very, very interesting in sort of setting a set of prescriptions for how the U.S. government might really try to fight back. Doesn't doesn't have to be a fight. It can be whatever you know, friendly or unfriendly, as 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 you wish. But I mean, this clearly has to get worked out in part because I mean. The EU is just the first in line here with GDPR. There are a lot of other countries, uh, Brazil, I think, and India and others with with aspirations or regulations that uh, impose similar special protections. And if you follow the logic of this and it isn't checked, you know, we really could um, end up in a very balkanized environment that I don't think anybody really believes is good. Um, And, you know, just imagine the mirror image of these requirements being imposed on the EU and its own member states. It's not not at all clear, to put it mildly, that they would meet the standards being dictated here by the ECJ. So you, you really could have just a giant shit show um, unless this thing is dealt with in an organized fashion. Um, I think right now, you know, you, you can allow people to still, you know, pick themselves off the floor um, and, and get themselves organized here. But I hope very much over time that this gets dealt with in an organized, responsible way with government involved, the U.S. government involved in one way or another. Yeah. Isn't that, I mean, I, I, I share every one of the sentiments that David has expressed, but um, this is the at least third, fourth, if you count Uh, some early work, time that the U.S. has tried to accommodate the Europeans um, in ways that uh, would be dealing with this in an organized way. And most of what we've done has uh, has been, I think, successful in accommodating the people who sort of understand the the bigger stakes, you know, initially I would I would characterize the European Commission as reluctant, and perhaps they got uh, their their themselves a little burned the first time, first or second time around. But this la- latest agreement, the Privacy Shield, was you know something that that they can and did trump it as 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 a reasonable victory for Europe. Um, yeah, you know, with with more concessions from the U.S. than than personally I might have counseled for, uh, and and that's still insufficient to satisfy the the ECJ. Um, yeah, I, I mean, to be blunt, I predict that nothing's going to happen before the American election. That there'll be temporizing and and half acidness, and and nothing will be finalized, and and that's to be expected. And and uh, you know how the U.S. approaches this in the in the new year will depend uh, to some degree on the on the nature of the election, though I agree with David that that even a Biden administration would not be making a lot more concessions. But the fundamental problem here is that the ECJ is just unwilling to take yes for an answer. And it wants it wants a 100 percent victory. And for as long as that's the case, it, you know, we're going to be at odds with them. I don't know how it ends. I I I fear very much that it'll devolve into tariff wars and and balkanized things. But but yeah, unlike unlike many situations around the globe where I would be happy to lay the blame at our feet for walking away from things these days, this is not one of those cases. 
this is a case where where yeah we've been we've been the good guys here and we're trying to accommodate and the ECJ won't say yes. Paul, can I just ask you and I guess Stuart or anyone else a question that uh, you guys may have more expertise on the technical side of GDPR than I do, having been at it longer and, and deeper. But do, do you think there is a way to finesse all this through some kind of derogation involving consent under Article 49? Because the, the consent theory there by its text doesn't seem to be limited to you know periodic or ad hoc usage. It seems to possibly allow for uh, consent at scale to transfers. Uh, and I just wonder whether there's room to maneuver there. I know there's been some advisory work out of the EU saying, yeah, but we don't want to, you know, create the loophole that swallows the rule. But I, I wonder if they actually, you know, if you look at the actual words, maybe gave an opportunity for a pretty big loophole, if you want to call it that, or at least a viable, con- you know, consent theory for transfers uh, at scale. Do you think that's right, or, or you, you're not very optimistic uh, on that? I I think that the that the language admits of that possibility. I expect some of the member states to try and drive in that direction, and in the end, my guess would be that the ECJ would uh, reject that uh, for the same reasons that they've rejected every other reasonable um, compromise. That they, that they won't accept anything other than uh, Sophie Infeldt's right to oversee the U.S. intelligence community, uh, Velnon. Sophie is, by the way, for those who don't know, a Dutch pro-privacy parliamentarian who's happy as a clam today. Oh, let me just further add the nightmare scenario, though. Schrems 3. Here's the observation. A lot of what is objected to is... 702 prism, the notion that without a warrant or any due process, um, the NSA Paperwork Reduction Act allows them to get information on legitimate targets. Um, So let us assume all Google's data gets localized in Europe and never leaves Europe in bulk. That still means that any given individual account can still be accessed from the U.S. and therefore is under 702. And therefore, that will be the topic of Schrems 3. Yeah. So you, you staying home is an export and therefore uh, not allowed. Uh, I, I think that... Uh, all of these are right. My sense is we have a crisis coming sooner than the election because the data protection authorities are saying there's no um, uh, grace period here. If you're still relying on the privacy shield, you are acting illegally. Uh, and thinking about what private companies can do, I think there's probably only two things they can do. They can rely on some of the uh, corporate clauses and binding corporate rules uh, and then go through the analysis that the court uh, said was necessary of making sure that U.S. law won't render the assurances uh, uh, void uh, by saying, we don't think that uh, U.S. intelligence wants our data. And that might work, uh, It's uh, at least for a time. And the alternative is to say to customers, we're moving your data. It is accessible by the U.S. intelligence community. If you're signing up with us, you're consenting to our 
uh, movement. Uh, and there are plenty of doctrines that have been developed by the data protection authorities over the years. When they don't want to apply consent, they say, oh, it was insufficiently clear uh, what you were consenting to. Your, uh, your consent was not properly uh, recorded or you uh, were told that if you didn't consent, you would lose some benefit, and that means it's not a voluntary choice. So again, I, I think that doing that is kind of a stopgap rather than a solution, but we may need a stopgap while we wait for the uh, uh, the government to sort itself out and decide whether it's mad as hell and what it's going to do about it. All right. Um, so speaking of mad as hell, uh, Democrat lawmakers have been saying they believe that there's foreign interference going on in the 2020 election. They aren't saying what the foreign interference is. Uh, my guess is Ukraine, but I don't know, Paul. Do you so yes, um, I, uh, or no, I don't know exactly which countries they're, they're, they're worried about. Um, I certainly think that it's both the Ukraine and likely Russian interference as well. I'm 100% certain that there have been classified briefings on this that are obviously above my uh, classification level right now, which is uh, no class or unclass. Um, uh, my wife says no class. There you go. Uh, and uh, But, um, you know, it, it seems clear that there's some – uh, that there's a bunch of underlying activity that's going on. Most of it is is more in the disinformation space than it is in the attacks on infrastructure space uh, that we've seen. We, we seem to be doing a good enough job screwing up the infrastructure and counting ourselves without the Russians having to do anything about it. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, how how broadly the briefings get on the Hill is is an open question uh, because, of course, you know that every briefing on the Hill eventually becomes unclassified by leak within 24 hours. So, so, so far they've been close held and they probably will stay that way. So the other thing that happened this week uh, uh, in the connection with Russian election interference and disinformation was the UK put out its long-awaited report on uh, um, uh, the Justice and Security Act, but it's really about Russia. And I would say it's kind of a, the masterpiece theater of government the reports on Russian uh, uh, interference because it's really nicely written and very candid. And the prejudices and the score settling um, is kind of off stage because it isn't the same scores that are being settled in the United States. So I, uh, I don't know, Paul, if you got a chance to spend time with it, but I thought it was a good report. I, I thought so, too. I, I mean, it, it, in the very midterm, in the near term, it, it will have a lot of political impact. I think in the midterm, it's, it's going to continue to give um, energy to, to an issue we've discussed on this show many times, which is uh, a, a really important discussion about whether or not there are any limits in social media at all and how uh, we in the West can approach that problem and still remain true to, to First Amendment or free speech values because they don't uh, – that without – uh, being authoritarian, but without opening ourselves up completely to it. It, it was a, it, it, for anybody who hasn't read it, it really is a primer 
on uh, a, a, a summarizing methodologies of interference that are that are going to be part and parcel of the of the landscape for the next fifteen to twenty years, unless we we decide to do something different. It's a really good report. Yeah, I. I, I, their, 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 their psychological uh, uh, analysis of the Russian approach to this, uh, basically casting them as nihilists who are just out to show that everybody sucks, uh, is, uh, I thought, spot on uh, and, uh, uh, and kind of entertaining as well. Uh, all right, uh, Nick, I, I, there's a private lawsuit against Apple claiming that uh, iTunes gift cards have been a major funding source for uh, scammers of all kinds. Uh, and uh, um, Apple says, well, you know, come on. When, once people have the, uh, the gift card, they take the money. So uh, we can't give it back to you. So, you know, what's your problem? <laughs> what's your problem is... Apple, um, the reason why I specifically flagged this for Stuart is there's some suitable letters from the DOJ listeners in this audience that can take care of the problem. So what's happening is a large fraction of the online scamming, you got to phone scam, etc. You got to get payments from the victims. And the victims don't understand how to use Bitcoin, so you tell them to get a gift card. And a huge fraction of these are iTunes gift cards. And Apple basically keeps 30% of anything spent through them. And a lot of the cash out is apparently not the cards being resold, but the... Um, cards being used to basically do fraudulent purposes to the co-conspirators application so that what is happening is basically Apple knows or should be able to trivially find out the recipient accounts buying the gift cards and or using the gift cards and blocking them the fraudulent apps that are using this to cash out both block them and reverse the charges. And even in the worst case, they still have 30% of the money and they do nothing. And the reason why this is so objectionable is I was involved in a research group and we have a philosophy. Don't play whack-a-mole on bad guys, play whack-a-mole on business models. And this is a 30% cut of the business model of scamming people through gift cards. And Apple I, could I, stop this. What's remarkable to me, and, and this is part of my private practice, I, I know that uh, uh, the people who do money orders, who used to be the favored uh, uh, source of paying scammers, uh, um, so uh, folks like Western Union, uh, were – uh, some of their agents, who they don't even control directly, uh, saw a bunch of the uh, pensioners coming in and saying, I won the Spanish lottery and uh, I'm here just to send the, the facilitating payment that will make sure that I get the half million dollars. And, uh, you know, after 10 people had come in, 
uh, the U.S. government said, well, you probably your your agents should have known this was a scam and they should have stopped these people. And they charged the FTC charged Western Union something like six hundred million dollars for having allowed that uh, much more indirect scam to go forward. And then the Justice Department piled on and uh, threatened them with prosecution, got a uh, deferred prosecution agreement with more money. I it's kind of remarkable that uh, Apple uh, hasn't experienced the same kind of review from justice and the FTC. Yes, because you give me access to Apple's internal data, and I know I could find the scammers, block the scammers, make this a non-viable cash-out method. And Apple knows that they have the internal people that could do it too. They just want to keep getting their 30% cut until the DOJ comes down on them like a ton of bricks. Let's hope so. Let's hope so. Uh, uh, but uh, uh, we're not going to lobby our guests uh, and interviewers, uh, interviewees uh, uh, on this part of the program. But, all right. Uh, no, the- but my email is open. <laughs> okay. Um the National Defense Authorization Act is, as per usual, uh, slowly grinding its way across Capitol Hill, and uh, Cyber Solarium's recommendations are slowly accreting to it, including possibly a uh, White House position of cyber coordinator or cyber director or something of the sort. Uh, um, uh, Paul, what's your view on cyber directors in the White House? Well, there are lots of things to be said about it. The first is that most people can't name uh, any of the other directors in the White House right now or for the last 15 years, who's currently the drug czar, uh, for example. So uh, to a really great degree, the the success of a director in the White House is very much dependent upon access to the president and authority to speak. Um, second, uh, we it will really very, very much depend upon the scope of his work. The Solarium Commission's recommendations seem to exclude uh, any role in coordinating the military portion of this with with the civilian, which would seem to me to be the main justification for having a director at the White House level, since the civilian side of it can suitably be, be coordinated at you know, the DHS, DOJ, CISA, uh, uh, CSIPS level, and the military side is, is doing pretty well on its own. So it's the linkage of the two that matters. Um, and third, you know, there's a real sense in which centralization slows things down. And that's probably the wrong ass answer for, for cyberspace, which moves more quickly than any other domain. So by and large, I'm a little skeptical of that. If it actually got more resources and more attention and more money at a at a senior level, it would be a good thing because I think that one of the things that has happened in the last few years has been a kind of frittering away of top level attention because of focus on other issues. Um, and so this uh, this is a revival would be good, but I suspect it would be less helpful than than the Solarian Commission thinks it's going to be, uh, which is unfortunate. Yeah. 
I, I, I'm, I'm with you. I think this was not the thing the Solarium Commission should have focused its attention on because the lack of a cyber coordinator in the White House is a symptom, not a cause of some of the uh, disarray that our cybersecurity policy has. Uh, um, you know, every president gets the White House he deserves, uh, and uh, this one certainly has. Uh, and making him create this office, like like making the, create, uh, the the White House create a drug czar probably hurts the cause because they the, the president will always wonder whether whoever holds that position is loyal to the president or to the people who created his job. Uh, and in the White House, that kind of mixed loyalty is fatal. Um, so I, I'm, I'm guessing that uh, we better if the, the White House would just create the damned uh, uh, position uh, as a way of getting the um, House and Senate off its back. And then I'd be happy uh, uh, with the result. Otherwise, I'm afraid this is a fight where I, even in a victory is not really a win. All right. Um, the Justice Department uh, has accused two hackers, uh, charged two hackers, but uh, hasn't arrested anybody with vaccine data thefts. Uh, David, this is this is starting to get to be uh, old news before it breaks uh, that the Justice Department has uh, uh, indicted another set of cyber espionage actors uh, without being able to arrest them. Anything uh, interesting here? I think there's three things that, that look interesting to me, um, but I'm kind of a nerd. So look, first, it, it goes back many years, but it's definitely stepped up recently, in the, including the recent focus on COVID-19 research, which is mentioned in the indictment. And so I think the first way to look at this is as through the lens of the just very, very aggressive and increasingly aggressive behavior of the PRC in cyberspace. Um, so this is not, I think, just you know, the Trump administration talking. This is a very real phenomenon from what I can tell. Uh, they really are, the, the Chinese really are just going hog wild. Uh, and we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, uh, you and I, Stuart, on this program with respect to Chris Ray's speech. Um, you know, I don't know exactly why PRC is doing this. Maybe they think the relationship with the U.S. is so volatile and, and so independent of whatever espionage it carries out that there's no real cost to it. But I do think it's a very real thing. And this is another symptom of that. Um, second, I think it shows the value of public-private partnerships in the PRC's cyber arsenal. This is a group that pursued both regime goals for the MSS uh, and a little bit more um, personal private efforts just to steal money. Um, and if you do kind of a net assessment of the U.S. and the PRC, um, you can sort of see this as an advantage for them. They're pretty good at uh, those public-private partnerships. I mean, they have a <laughs> totally different you form. Call public, you call it a public-private partnership. I'd, I'd call it crony cyber espionage. Uh, these are basically guys who say, hey, I'm trained to do all this stuff. Uh, why don't I make some money off it too? Well, when you're and when you're in a um, highly centralized, uh, you know, quasi-totalitarian state, um, that's the way to go. But if you just look at the relationship between Washington D.C. and Silicon Valley as a contrast, the the contrast is striking in terms of bringing to bear uh, all of the assets of uh, in the country, both both governmental and, and sort of at least quasi non-governmental. So I just look at it through that lens. The other thing, though, um, on sort of apropos of the point you made, that the third point on this is 
just it's another indictment of PRC cyber actors with little hope of actual arrest unless they, you know, stupidly forget and take a vacation in Disney World or something. But um, that's been going on for a while. What's interesting here in a way is that according to the indictment, the grand jury knows the name uh, of one or more MSS officers, but they don't actually identify them. And in the past, you know, the, sometimes they do. They put their photos in there and their names. This one talks about MSS officer one, kind of like individual one, you know, or whatever they use uh, to not reveal names. They show the workplace where these guys hang out. Um, there's pictures of their office, but they don't name them. So that's just an interesting shift towards sort of definitely naming the MSS, but not naming the individual officers, even though they apparently do know their names. But maybe they hope that if they don't name them, uh, they can lull them into a Disney World trip. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh, uh, <laughs> that would be pretty bad tradecraft by the MSS to send its officers to uh, the United States for vacation. But you never know. Uh, those, those red notices and arrest warrants stay in place for a long time and people forget. So, have Paul, has everybody forgotten the Twitter hack or is there still some uh, fallout from that? Oh, everybody's forgotten it except you and me, Stuart. <laughs> you know, but uh, I, I mean, I, I, I think that it's it, 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 it's remarkable in a number of ways. I mean, first off, the more we learn about it, the wider the scope of, of huge administrative privileges was within Twitter. You know, uh, more than a thousand people could could block and 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 accounts and therefore could access the accounts and post on its behalf. Um, I think uh, one of the things that that I've learned about it is that even Twitter has crappy uh, security. So uh, so the myth of of uh, competence at the uh, at the corporate level in the United States is is really just a myth. Um, you know, and uh, and then uh, I think, you know, back uh, when it first happened, lots of people had their hair on fire about it and nothing seems to have happened. So I'm wondering if having your hair on fire about a social media platform being hacked is is today's equivalent of, uh, you know, uh, high dudgeon and, and uh, uh, over things that really don't matter. But that's my reaction today. Yeah. Paul, aren't you I'm, 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 aren't you glad that your friend and former colleague Jim Baker is now at Twitter to help deal with this? Poor, poor Jim. <laughs> yeah, well, he's got he's going to have a lot of work to do. Yeah, to do. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I, I once I was once when I was uh, at the National Security Agency, a, uh, a independent government body proposed doing a study of a a very high sen sensitivity topic. And they, they were going to get uh, uh, 12 uh, experts from the private sector and give them clearances to uh, poke around in our classified programs. Uh, and I said, are you kidding? Even Jesus couldn't find 12 people he could trust. Uh, uh, Twitter, Twitter has a thousand. Um, uh, uh, so it's not surprising that they, uh, they have this problem. Uh, it's not surprising that they have the problem and are looking for revenue. They, 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 they've always been the poor relation at the uh, Silicon Valley social media uh, feast. Um, and they're actually talking about uh, charging, asking people to 
pay for subscriptions to Twitter, which, you know, my first reaction was, at last I can cancel my subscription. Uh, but uh, it, this, is really, this is really a revenue problem for uh, Twitter has never had enough revenue. And so they are always cutting corners and security is a corner you can cut until it bites you. And that's my guess about what happened here. Stuart, I just want you to know that if they do charge for subscriptions, I'm going to pay solely for the purpose of subscribing to your tweets. Okay? So I'm there for you, okay, brother. Well, I'm on the other side. If it costs money to get Baker's tweets, I'm out of here. I'll only subscribe if they actually enforce their terms of service against the president. Uh, I, I, but there are a whole host of people who only would subscribe to get uh, the president's tweets. You could you could force CNN to to have a seat a seat by seat license to uh, to read his tweets and and then be outraged. I don't want to I don't want to close off this discussion though without getting to um, this really interesting paper suggesting that if you're worried about face recognition, there's a way to poison the well. Uh, and David, I don't know if you dug into this, but I, you know, at first I thought, well, this is stupid. And it, it, it is stupid for any one person to do. But at scale, uh, this actually might have a, uh, an impact on face recognition. Yeah, I, I think I look at this through two lenses. One is the individual, um, you know, Guy Fox type of thing or V for Vendetta with masks or like in various science fiction stories I've seen on television or read, they, you know, have like LED lighting that blows up the algorithm. And so you can proceed in anonymity just shows you how digital network technology generally uh, is adaptable and, and creates a lot of freedom of choice. Um, which may not produce socially desirable outcomes because bad guys may have high incentive to take advantage of privacy enhancements. And of course, their privacy is bad for our security. Um, I think the larger aspect of this um, is that it shows the vulnerability of AI and machine learning um, in visual processing and the the potential benefits to the adversary of poisoning large data sets. Um, I wrote a very arcane short piece about this on Lawfare a while back about um, analytic superiority and the, the way in which you poison data. And I mean, you know, think about not just sort of adding some human invisible pixel that screws up a facial recognition algorithm. Imagine, you know, screwing up an algorithm that's designed to distinguish between submarines and whales uh, in a military setting or something like that. Uh, it, it really shows you the vulnerability of uh, big data analytic projects as applied to, you know, uh, visual images. Not, not that we shouldn't be pursuing that, but just that, boy, if you're not careful, somebody can really screw with you and you might not know it until you accidentally shoot a cruise missile at a whale and let the submarine go by. <laughs> So two thoughts on that. Uh, one, since the Chinese are stealing all our stuff anyway, maybe we ought to uh, maintain a whole set of poison databases just for them. Um, uh, and Exactly. And, and maybe it will gradually replace the good facial data that they, they already have or the other. I mean, this is not limited to facial data. Uh, and the other thought I had is if I were Facebook or uh, um maybe Twitter, but Facebook probably, uh, uh, Flickr, uh, I might say everybody hates 
uh, facial recognition. Why don't I go through and find all the faces on my entire service and poison them? It does not change what they look like. Uh, And then I'll tell people, in order to protect your privacy, we have poisoned your data so that uh, the next time uh, Clearview AI scrapes it, uh, their their artificial intelligence agent will get dumber, not smarter. Can I can I ask a question about this to either you or David or somebody else who knows? Um, one of the one of the things that's been happening a lot has been the deployment of AI for identification of things like child pornography. Um, will this also make that problematic? So you have to have access to the um, the training data. And, and in this case, the training data has been controlled by the companies that want to stop the child porn. Uh, and second, once uh, my, my sense is they have not actually done an AI engine for finding new child porn by looking at old child porn. So far, they've mostly been focused on hashing known child porn and and then looking for things that, that yeah have. no i i've actually been writing we we got to do this on another topic Stuart. but but google has an ai that is actually being let loose on trained data to try and find this stuff um in the test stages so i'm i'm interested in figuring out whether or not this means that 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 won't work no it will because they're looking for something different so with face recognition what you're doing is looking for a specific pair of a set of patterns on a face and the poisoning is ended to disrupt that um the child exploitation material is looking for a different set of patterns and they're the type of patterns that both won't be um, subject to this sort of manipulation, and B, you aren't taking adversarial input, that this is very cautiously curated data um, that's being done and used to train so that you shouldn't have this problem. I suppose if you had a real store of stuff like this, and which unfortunately a lot of people do have, and you wanted to go through and systematically poison it all in the hopes that it would end up poisoning the uh, the AI engine, uh, you'd be basically doing it for somebody else, not yourself, because uh, it presumes that you've already been caught. So it strikes me as impossible plausible someone would do it, but it might work uh, uh, because people can't tell from looking at it. They, they could curate it all they want without knowing that it has been poisoned. All right. Uh, let's, let's cut it off there. Uh, one, one question, Nick, um, uh, a, a brand new quantum internet that's going to be unhackable. <laughs> Okay, thank you for that comment. That's all we needed. <laughs> uh, I have a specific rant on uh, quantum uh, quantum cryptography that we'll wait for another day. All right, we'd, we'd love to hear it. So let's go to our interview, which this week is with Lauren Willard, uh, who serves as counsel to the Attorney General on uh, pretty much all things digital and legal, uh, including competition policy and the like. But uh, uh, her 
beat includes Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, which is why we're talking to her today, because uh, she played a significant role in the production of a Justice Department uh, report on uh, how Section 230 um, is working, how well it's working, and what kinds of reforms might be appropriate since it's been hanging around since the 90s, uh, rarely changed, uh, and has produced a bunch of case law, which I think would have surprised the drafters of the uh, uh, section when it was first adopted. So, Lauren, welcome. Great. Thanks so much for having me, Stuart. Oh, it's great to have you. Uh, uh, and uh, uh, let me. Uh, why don't I last, let you explain what Section Two Thirty does, uh, and then we'll talk a little bit about why it might be controversial. Sure, happy to. So, Section Two Thirty of the Communications Decency Act um, provides immunity from civil liability for online platforms, what the statute calls interactive computer services, and it provides immunity both for hosting third-party content as well as for removing certain categories of content. Um, and as you, you alluded to, the statute was passed back in 1996, um, kind of to nurture a nascent industry to promote free speech online, while also encouraging platforms to take down obscene, uh, violent, and other content harmful for children. Uh, And the reason it it arose in part was to react to a series of court decisions around that time that put online platforms in a dilemma. Uh, One court case said that if you did not take down any content, you were just a passive bulletin board, which essentially was what the internet was back in the day of AOLs and Prodigy, then you weren't liable for any third-party speech on your platform, for example, for defamation. But as soon as you started taking down some content, for example, pornography or other harmful content, that suddenly transformed you into a publisher. And the reason that matters is that you could be liable for third-party speech, even if you didn't know about it or contribute to it. Um, and so it put, it put platforms in this dilemma as you either don't moderate at all to avoid liability and have the wild, wild west, or you, you moderate and face increased liability. So Section 230 came around in part to that as part of the broader Communications Decency Act, which you noted, uh, and has these kind of twin immunities, what we call the C1 and C2, um, that help platforms both not be on the hook for third-party content that they aren't responsible for in whole or in part, as well as to provide clear immunity for taking down obscene, lewd, lascivious, violent, harassing, and otherwise objectionable content uh, in order to encourage them to be good Samaritans and policing the internet for making a safer place for children. So I'll stop there, but that kind of is a quick overview, and then we can get into to where it's gone in the past 25 years. Yeah, because it's it's really having a moment uh, uh, after 25 years, uh, uh, and not necessarily a good one. Both uh, candidates for president, uh, uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump, have uh, said that section immunity, it's got to go. Uh, that section 230 immunity uh, uh, needs to be uh, reworked or thrown out. Uh, and, why are they? Why are, are suddenly people so upset about Section Two Thirty? Is this just uh, people are mad at uh, Silicon Valley, and it's this feels like a stick to beat them with, or have there been decisions that 
uh, turn out to be abusive uh, or not what was expected? Well, there's been really a combination of two things, I will say, over the past 25 years that has led us to where we are in the fervor about Section 230. So one is just the changes in technology. So uh, Section 230 was passed at a time where these platforms were bulletin boards that were passive. It was very rudimentary in some ways. And over time, with the growth of big tech platforms, algorithms, AI, um, you really see a change both in kind of the concentration of power into a few big platforms as well as a change in the type of platforms that we have, ones that where they kind of blur the line now from just passively hosting speech to actively creating content and playing a much stronger role. And at the same time as you have these immense technological changes, that's against a backdrop of court decisions that have interpreted the immunity under Section 230 extremely broadly in ways that I think that the, the authors would not have predicted. So not only is it protecting platforms against defamation, which was kind of the core purpose of the statute, but it has protected them against sex trafficking, against a whole host of criminal activity, even where the platforms know about it or worse, are actively facilitating or engaging unlawful material. Um, And so the two things, I think the technological changes combined with the expansive court interpretations has led to a situation where online platforms are just immune for a wide array of illicit activity and free to censor speech without transparency or accountability. Um, And that's really the problem that we're trying to address with our proposed reforms. Well, I I think it's fair to say that um, uh, all of Silicon Valley for a while just came off the bench any time Section 230 was at risk, saying you can't do this, you can't do this, that we depend on it. Uh, Very aggressive defense of the um, section. Uh, I maintain it as is. But as you say, um, uh, one of the uh, ways in which it was used is uh, uh, a company started putting out uh, what amounted to uh, uh, prostitution at home services uh, that you could uh, uh, find a bunch of people who were engaged in sex trafficking from their homes. Uh, And uh, it was all very easy to locate. And yet the folks who created those forums uh, said, you can't come after us, we're immune. Um, And that led to passage of the first really big um, bite out of Section 230, which was FOSTA. Uh, What did FOSTA do? So FOSTA, as you mentioned, was a response to uh, Backpage.com, which was a platform that was facilitating sex trafficking, and the court held that they were immune under Section 230 um, because the website was an interactive computer service provider, and even though it wasn't you know, it was facilitating the content. It wasn't the author of some of the posts itself. And so I think Congress finally saw that there there should be limits to Section 230 immunity for these horrendous actors out there that are actively uh, uh, facilitating sex trafficking and, and child sex trafficking. And so what FOSTA did is it had a carve out uh, of Section 230 that would carve out Section 230 for knowingly facilitating sex trafficking claims under, under the statutes. Um, and, and that was an important development because it shows, as you mentioned, you know, it's not the debate needs to move on from don't touch it at all or repeal entirely to what are targeted reforms that can distinguish between the benefits of 230, the core objective for protecting against defamation for kind of 
the expansive approach that's had over the years to provide immunity for a host of really egregious and horrendous activity online. And so I think FOSTA was the first bite at the apple, um, but it much more needs to be done. And and that leads us to the report. Uh, why did the Justice Department produce this report? So this actually started almost a year ago now. And, and originally, we started looking at some of the big market-leading online platforms, and we initiated a review, which focused a, a fair amount on antitrusting competition. But one thing we realized as we were listening to stakeholders and consumers and society is that not all of the concerns that we were hearing about the big tech platforms felt within kind of traditional antitrust. And, and one example of this was the concerns about the broad immunity that platforms have under Section 230. So given that, we we convened a department-wide working group to look at the statute and potential reforms. We held a big workshop in February um, with experts from a diverse uh, perspectives. We also had an expert roundtable. And thank you, Stuart, for being one of our esteemed experts at that Chapman House Rural Roundtable. And, and then we had dozens of, of listening sessions with industry, with businesses from, from different uh, across the board, as well as NGOs and other experts. And so following all the feedback and internal analysis, we decided in June to release our, our recommendations and summary of, kind of our public events and again, to really try to contribute to the dialogue to say, we don't have to have this discussion at one end or the other. Uh, there can be a, a set of concrete reforms across the board on a number of issues that keep the benefits, uh, but also address the harms. And our, our intention was to be, be measured, but concrete, uh, and to provide some, some, some thought as we continue to work on kind of draft legislation as well. Well, it's an interesting approach. And the, the FTC does this a lot when they're thinking about getting into a new area and they want to stake a claim. They they get a bunch of stakeholders in to talk about it. And then they write a thoughtful report based on what they've heard from people. And that's their I- initiation into uh, potentially bringing more uh, FTC cases, consumer protection cases, or what have you. Um, and I hadn't seen the Justice Department do it. And I'm puzzled because at the same time that that was going on, the president was writing an executive order in the White House on Section 230 that I, I would say doesn't come to a lot of conclusions, although it, it, it has some pretty harsh things to say about 230. Uh, but it asks uh, regulatory agencies to take action. It, was there a connection between your report and the executive order? So the report, as I mentioned, I mean, we started over a year ago, uh, and the report itself reflects our year work of, of analyzing this issue, talking to a range of stakeholders, our February event. So I, I think in some ways our report is broader, but at the same time, the executive order notes some of the same concerns we already had with respect to the lack of transparency and accountability of platforms when they were moving lawful speech. Uh, and so uh, while our report and our, our kind of proposals are broader than the EO, it's certainly consistent and, and responsive to the EO, which also calls for draft legislation on Section 230. Yeah, there, there, is, there are rumors that the executive order was produced quite quickly uh, and maybe not with as much interagency uh, uh, mastication as one might prefer, but I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. Let me ask you, what kinds of things do you think ought to be on the menu for 
230 reform? What does the report actually tell us should be done? So I think our, our, so we have a number of proposals, and I, I won't go through absolutely everything here, but I think they fall into really two categories when you think about it. Um, there, there's, a, there's one category which, intent, which is intended to incentivize actors to address illicit um, kind of federal criminal activity on their platforms. Uh, and there's another category of reforms uh, with respect to lawful speech that would require platforms to be more accountable and transparent when they're removing you know, constitutionally protected speech. Uh, and I think those two categories are necessary to work together. And, and, and essentially, when I think about it, it's almost like if you imagine you have a bookcase with bookends on either side. You want pressure on both sides to ensure you don't end up in a scenario where platforms over-censor for fear of liability, um, but you also don't want a wild, wild west where you have really harmful content online. Um, and, and the key thing is the distinction between the two, the difference between criminal content on the one hand and the obligations platforms have to do to address that uh, when, they, when they have knowledge or actively soliciting um, versus what you have to do when you're, when you're confronted with lawful speech. Um, and it was interesting because I did see a critique saying that the DOJ wants platforms to take down more and less speech. And I said, yes, that's precisely right. Uh, we want them to be better when it comes to criminal content uh, and fair when it comes to lawful speech. The, the law recognizes a distinction between the two, so, so too should platforms. Um, so kind of the, those are the two big, big categories. And, and, and I think within that, the other common theme that we're looking at is that Section 230, as the title shows, was, was meant to incentivize good Samaritans. And who is a good Samaritan? Someone that goes out of their way to help a victim in need. Uh, and so at minimum, who are the bad Samaritans or, or who are the actors or actions that aren't deserving of this broad subsidy that you don't see anywhere else in the, in the analog world? Uh, and, and so we found a number of, 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 of categories of, of both actors in terms of those ones that purposely facilitate or, or encourage criminal behavior, uh, as well as certain categories of claims, whether it's child sex abuse, terrorism, cyber stalking, or antitrust that just seem to fall so outside the core of what the objective of 230 was and, and shouldn't be covered uh, in the statute. So, so that's kind of going to be addressing illicit activity as well as giving us uh, more ability to go after bad actors, both criminally and civilly as the government, um, where we have a high bar and we can protect American consumers. Um, so, and then the other, the other side of it, which we can get to later, um, would be addressing the kind of good faith and the C2 type provisions. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I suspect that the discussion of what content they shouldn't be immune for leaving up uh, uh, a section of the report is the less controversial. Obviously, uh, the uh, uh, the big platforms are going to fight any change as they fought FOSTA, uh, and they fought the Earned Act, which would have dealt with the same uh, uh, problem in the area of child sexual abuse material. Uh, but I don't think they think they can win that fight by saying, hey, we're Silicon Valley, we can't afford to keep child sex abuse material off the internet, uh, or terrorism, um, or maybe even cyber stalking, which are the topics that the report suggests uh, they shouldn't have an immunity for, they should be encouraged to take down. Uh, but none of that strikes me as um, something that would be controversial outside of uh, the boardrooms of Silicon Valley. Uh, uh, saying that you shouldn't have an immunity for purposely facilitating criminal violations, also, duh. Um, at, 
being required to take down stuff that you actually know is unlawful because you've got a court judgment in the mail. I, again, uh, kind of those are all things that um, they can afford to to do. I would have thought, uh, uh, as long as the standard is 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 recklessness or knowledge about the presence of the material on their uh, 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 on their sites. What's the most pushback you've gotten on those so the, the 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 pushback that you think is is worth um giving credence to sure um i'm not sure about giving credence to but maybe i can highlight some, some of the points we've had more discussions on um i think the so one thing obviously the bad actor um i think you're right that's kind of hard for the big big platforms or anyone to really object to the concept and obviously the devil's in the details but there's certain ways you can draft it so you don't open up the floodgates to frivolous litigation. Um, at the same time, it's kind of important to make sure those bad actors are carved out. Uh, the actual knowledge, actual notice um, tends to, to be, you mentioned the court judgments. I mean, I think that's the minimum standard to overrule Hassel v. Bird, which is a, a California Supreme Court decision that said even in the face of a court judgment, platforms don't have to take down unlawful content, which just seems ridiculous to me. I think that's the minimum approach. The harder issue when you're talking about something like child sexual abuse material, CSAM or terrorism, uh, you may not be able to wait to have something to be adjudicated by a court before you want it down. This is something if you have your child and her and she's been abused and the image is up on the internet, do you really want to require that victim to go through a lengthy court battle in order to have it adjudicated before a platform has to do anything? And so I think there needs to be something of a recognition that in the short term, there may be steps that platforms need to take short of a court order uh, in order to address content. Again, we're trying to limit it to some content that's clearly illegal, the federal criminal content, so that platforms can recognize this and have knowledge that it would violate the federal criminal law. It's much harder, obviously, with defamation, for example, to tell whether the soup was cold at a restaurant and that was defamatory. It's much easier to say something is, is, is child sexual abuse material or, or, or illicit drug trafficking or what have you. Um, so I think that's one area where I think we need to think creatively about what can we do for those victims uh, beyond the court order fix, which is the minimum necessary. Um, the other thing I'll also flag, Stuart, I think you'd appreciate this, is if you're imposing an actual notice or knowledge standard, there may be a perverse incentive for platforms to willfully blind themselves to knowing that there's anything going on on their platforms in order to avoid liability. So we need to make sure in any legislation that we don't let platforms get out of it by not having any way to contact them, for example. You imagine you have a platform, you have phone, no phone number, no email address. You can't tell us if you're being harassed or, or victimized on our platform. Um, and then there's as far also as I can tell, that's all that's all of them, right? The, have you ever gone <laughs> for Amazon's uh, uh, it, uh, uh, judicial redress uh, page? Uh, yeah, it, it, you're right. It would be um, they'd be enthusiastic about uh, hiding that or making it hard. And of course, uh, I'm sure that we're going to hear from people who say, "Oh, that's just a way of saying you don't want end-to-end -to -end encryption." If people put in end-to-end -end encryption, it will willfully blind them to the criminal conduct that's going on on their network. And we don't want you to do anything that would uh, uh, disincentivize people to launch end-to-end -end encryption. Yeah, and I, and I think there's a few responses to that, Stuart. So first of all, it's, it's you know, our, our bill is technology neutral. It's uh, not intended to be the lawful access fix. I mean, there's a 
uh, there's a grand legislation that is on lawful access separately, I think, in the, in the Senate right now. I think what this is going no, at yeah. is as. Yeah, as I mentioned before, we're looking at what does it mean to be a good Samaritan? And that's part of 230. Uh, and a good Samaritan is not someone that puts on a blindfold while they're walking by a victim and, and worse, puts up barricades so that no one else can see or help the victim. So it very much is consistent with the concept of what it means to be a good Samaritan and who earns this broad subsidy. Uh, regardless of the particular technology. But I will say, and, and I know you, you've thought about this issue too, I mean, the problem with both willful blindness and, and lawful access generally is just trying to think about how this would apply in the real world. Imagine you have an arcade or a playground that's open to public and kids, and at the same time you have drug dealers or child predators or violent criminals coming around. And the, the owner of that arcade or playground, right, to avoid liability, makes it, one, impossible to, for the parents to see the threats, to see the predators, and then leaves the property, locks the door, throws away the key, turns off the video cameras, and makes it impossible for police or fires or ambulances to come and help them. And so uh, I just think people are sometimes missing it out. You can have both strong encryption and care about public safety and health victims. They're not mutually exclusive. Uh, and, and it's sometimes helpful to think outside of the internet to what this would look like in the real world. Um, but, but, but just to say that this is very much predicated on what it means to be a good Samaritan and the concerns about the perverse incentives that there isn't, uh, some, some, some pressure so that platforms can't avoid liability just by turning a blind eye to, to criminal content on their platforms. So you're making a case that, 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 to my mind, suggests that you really can't expect to handle all of these problems with the occasional once a decade legislative fix or by going through the common law process of litigating this, uh, uh, especially in state courts. It'll, it'll be long and messy and uh, ambiguous. Um, and it raises the question whether a, a regulatory regime is appropriate here. Um, a, and uh, the the executive order actually asks both the FTC and the FCC to engage in a form of regulation, to use their existing authorities. Uh, I always understood the FTC authority, which is about, you know, are you uh, applying your rules the way you wrote them? Uh, but I, uh, the FCC is apparently going to get a petition from the uh, uh, Commerce Department today asking them to uh, regulate in this area. My first reaction was, well, what authority does the FCC have to regulate in this area? Um, and when I asked around, I actually discovered there's a pretty plausible argument that the FCC does have jurisdiction here. I don't know if you encountered that in the course of, of working on this. If, if you haven't, I'll try to articulate what I understand the, the theory to be. So actually, what's, what's interesting, when we were looking at this problem even over a year ago, we were thinking about the different routes one could take, and rulemaking is one of them, because if you think about it, a lot of what our legislative proposals are doing are trying to get back to the text and the original purpose of Section 230 that courts have just expanded so broadly, uh, stretching the text kind of beyond what it was intended to do. And there are a few different ways you could address 
address that. You could do that through amicus opportunities in the courts and hope that they shift back. You could do that through regulations. And to your point specifically, I think the FCC, as the Supreme Court has held in Iowa Utilities, as well as City of Arlington, the FCC, has authority to prescribe rules and regulations under the Telecommunications Act, where Section 236, um, that's Section 201B for anyone curious. And, and so clearly they, they can interpret some of these ambiguous phrases in 230 the same way you could also do for legislation. So they're actually very complementary in the sense of you can go fix some things through regulation, legislation, judicial decisions, or all three. Uh, and then and think about, and we didn't touch on as much, the, the transparency and accountability part of our reform, providing some teeth for what it means to be in good faith. That's a, something the courts haven't given enough uh, kind of credence to them as a key part of the C2. When you're taking down content, you have to do so in good faith. Now, what does that mean? I mean, you can imagine the FCC interpreting that through rulemaking, or you can provide a statutory definition, or courts can can try to to, to be better at kind of giving that a little bit more teeth. And, and certainly, uh, in our view at least, you know, it's not good faith if you if you violate your own terms of service. Or if you have terms of service that are impossible to understand uh, and you don't provide some meaningful kind of notice where appropriate an opportunity to kind of respond. Yeah, I, 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 I remember when the executive order came out, uh, the uh, the bien pensant uh, view was, oh, this is all just hopeless political blather. Uh, uh, there's no legal basis for any of the things that are being recommended uh, uh, or asked for. Uh, but in fact, uh, uh, obviously, the FTC has a long history of saying you need to tell people what you're going to do, and then you need to stick to what you've told them you're going to do. Um, so that's an easy jurisdictional argument. The 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 argument that the FCC has the authority to interpret and write rules for Section 230 is new to me. Uh, pretty compelling when you look at the Supreme Court cases that you cited. Uh, they, they basically say if it's in the, the, the Telecom Act, then um, there's a grant of authority to write regs. And this is for sure in the Telecom Act, uh, um, which means the FCC could actually decide, well, good faith, it's the kind of squishy word that does call for some clearer regulation. Uh, I saw that uh, one Democratic commissioner has said, this is preposterous, we'll never do this. And one Republican commissioner has said, uh, there's a lot that needs to be done here. So uh, we, could, we could have a real fight in the commission about uh, whether to write regs adopting some of your proposals or some of the other ideas that are kicking around in this field. Yeah, we'll see. I mean, I think we do think FCC has authority for the reasons mentioned. As you said, the, the Supreme Court's been pretty clear. Congress is legislating against the background of uh, 201B. And so if it doesn't want the FCC to have rulemaking authority, it has to say so explicitly. But I think there's a number of ambiguity, amb ambiguities that would be helpful for either rulemaking courts or legislation to address. Good faith is one of them. The other is the relationship between C1 and C2, the C1 being the liability 
responsibility for hosting speech and C2 being the, the immunity uh, for taking down speech. And unfortunately, some courts have read the first uh, C1 uh, to render basically C2 superfluous. So this idea that even if you take down speech outside of the specific statutory categories, you're nonetheless immune under C1, which is kind of a hard construction. The EO touches on that. I think that's another area that we write for further uh, discussion just to make sure that the statute's read um, as, as it was intended to uh, and not provide this blanket immunity for platforms to act arbitrarily without transparency and without any accountability just because they're on the internet and not in the real world. Yeah. Well, if, for, for those who appreciate irony in, in government, uh, uh, the, um, uh, the Republican FCC commissioner talking about what could be done says, hey, you know, th- there is this transparency problem. People, people get um, uh, shadow banned and dinged and lose all of their business uh, because of decisions made by uh, Google or face- Facebook uh, uh, without any idea what happened or why. Uh, and uh, we, the FCC, have adopted a rule for internet service providers that re- requires transparency. They have to disclose any practices that shape internet traffic, blocking, prioritizing, discriminating. Um, and we could apply those rules to Silicon Valley. Which is the irony here, of course, is that the only reason the FCC has those rules is an immense lobbying campaign launched by Silicon Valley designed to get the kind of net neutrality policy adopted by the FCC uh, that would prevent the ISPs from discriminating against their content. So this is this is basically saying, ha, huh, if it was such a good idea when you were mad at the ISPs, maybe you should live with the rule too. Um, so it will be very interesting to watch that play out. I won't ask you to comment on that. Let me, t- let me uh, just ask you, uh, uh, where do you think all of this goes next? Is the, is, is the action going to move to the FTC and the FCC? Um, Are we going to see administration uh, proposals for legislation? What what do you predict will be the next uh, uh, avenue for this debate? I think, as you notice, this is a time where a lot of people are interested in Section 230 and what to do. Uh, I think there's a number of different ways uh, to address it, and they're not mutually exclusive. So um, you could see movement uh, with with the rulemaking, as you mentioned. The EO requires the petition to be sent sometime in the short short term, and and also uh, there may be movement from the administration on legislation as well, which was called for by the executive order. Um, again, I think our our hope with the report in June was to get our ideas out there and continue engagement, which we have been with stakeholders. And again, recognizing that there are some benefits from 230 that we want to preserve. We're not trying to revoke it entirely. We're recognizing uh, some, some benefits. But at the same time, I think this quote from, from the Ninth Circuit opinion room, it's quite, quite illustrative of, you know, the internet has outgrown its swaddly clothes and no longer needs to be so gently coddled. And so this idea of, you know, they don't need as broad and sweeping immunity as they used to especially when it comes to incentives to address criminal activity like child sexual abuse, terrorism, drug trafficking, uh, and also just abiding by their own terms of service, which is an important first step uh, in interpreting the good faith provision. 
Yes, the, the two thirty. You know, I lived through the nineties. Two thirty is so nineteen nineties. Uh, it says there's a social <laughs> problem here. We should we should solve it by giving a vast immunity to uh, um, uh, uh, internet companies and not ask them for anything because we're sure they'll do the right thing if we just give them the immunity. Uh, and I, you know that that is not twenty twenty uh, for sure. Um, so I think we're going to see this debate. Uh, go on for quite some time. Uh, uh, Lauren Willard, uh, 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 thank you very much. This was a really uh, interesting and deep discussion of Section 230. And I certainly hope you stay involved in this debate for many years to come. Great. Thank you, Stuart, so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Uh, thanks to Lauren Willard. Thanks also to Nick Weaver, David Chris, Paul Rosenzweig for joining us today. This has been episode 326 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send comments and feedback to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. If you suggest a guest uh, and nobody suggested Lauren, so they do not get a highly coveted Cyber Law Podcast mug, but we will send you one, Lauren, because uh, um, it's under $20 and you can accept it as a gift. Uh, um, and uh, follow me on Twitter at Stuart Baker or on LinkedIn because uh, about half the time I will put out uh, uh, suggestions for stories and ask people to give us uh, a vote about which ones they want to hear. Uh, and please, if you like the show, or even if you don't and you're willing to be entertaining about why, uh, leave us a review on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you uh, listen to podcasts. And then join us uh, not next week, not the week after that, not all of August, not until after uh, Labor Day, but uh, we will be back and we will once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. 